Firstly, reading from 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 to 9, page 204 in the Church Bibles. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And now reading from 1 Samuel 24, 1 to 22, page 209 in the Church Bibles. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord the king, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. 
May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just told now you have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Well, good day, church. Uh, it's good to be back amongst you. If you um, don't know, let me let me inform, let me fill you in with what's happened. Um, recently, my wife gave birth to our second kid, and there he is. That's little Isaac. Thank you. Yes, yes. I was hoping for the ah reaction, primarily because I got a joke lined up for that one, and the joke is this, yes, it's all down to genetics, it's okay. You got it, see, it was not too bad. But yeah, well, we've, we've just come back on deck, it's really good to be back with you here today, good to be here. My voice is uh, uh, not going so well, bear with me through that please, and we'll get there together. We've been working our way through 1 Samuel, as Brian said, and today is our Today is our final day in 1 Samuel, which might seem a little bit premature because we're only just past halfway. You're right. We've got 14 chapters to go, and today we're covering those 14 chapters. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, 14 chapters? We're never going to get it. You can forget about community lunch today. Believe me, I was panicking when I started my preparation too, but look, here's how we're going to tackle it. Really, three... three um, kind of main markers in the, in, the, in the talk today. Firstly, David's story. I want to briefly, and I do mean briefly, just recap uh, through our way through the 14 chapters. We'll skim through, we're missing a lot of details, but hopefully we'll get a big picture of what's happening. Uh, and, and that'll help us notice, uh, as, as, we, as we do, we'll notice how, how David's story actually prepares us to understand Jesus' story better. And then after we've had a little brief look at Jesus' story, we'll consider our own story too. Makes sense? Simple? Let's go. Okay, I want to start with asking you a question then. Here's the question. Have you ever thought to yourself that God really owes you something? Some nights recently with a new baby, I've thought, man, God owes me a bit more sleep than this, doesn't he? Not really though. My wife's had to take the brunt of that, to be honest. But seriously, maybe it goes something like this for you. Look, God, I've been following you for so long. I've, I've never turned away. I've sacrificed for you. Please, just, just bring my kids back into the faith. You kind of owe it to me, don't you, God? God, I've been fighting this, this battle against this particular sin. I'm tempted by it all the time and I'm trying so hard not to give in, not to give in. Don't you owe it to me, God, after all this effort to not give in? Don't you owe it to me to take away that temptation out of my life? God, I've been putting myself out there at work. 
been trying to have conversations with my mates about Jesus. I really want them to, to even just show a little bit of interest, but I'm getting nowhere. Can't you do something about it, God? Look at the sacrifice I'm making. Don't you owe it to me? Have you ever had thoughts like that? Let me tell you how it plays out for me. God, I've given my life to serve you. Look, I even became a pastor of a church. I love it, but you know it's not always easy. I'm serving you here like you asked. God, don't you owe it to me to make my plan succeed, to make my ministry a successful one? You know, when I say it out loud like that, it, it sounds ludicrous. It sounds just ridiculous. But if I'm honest with you, I do have those thoughts. What is it for you? What do you think it is that God owes you? If anyone could say, God, you owe me something, it's David, right? Let's, let's, let's briefly look at his story now through these 14 chapters. Just before our chapter started, David, in chapter 17, David is this, this little shepherd boy who took out Goliath, the giant, the one who, who mocked God, the great enemy of God's people. Does God owe him something now? Back in chapter 16... God made the great prophet Samuel anoint David as the king. He's the new king. And in our 14 chapters, we actually see David acting like the king again and again and again. So just briefly, he leads the people in military successes. He rescues an Israelite town when the Philistines attack. He raids the land of Israel's enemies. You know what? He even, he even takes a Philistine city and makes it a city that belongs to, to the Israelite kings, to the Judean kings. And he doesn't even take a sword out of his belt to do it. It's amazing. David is constantly acting like the king. But of course, there's one problem, isn't there? And it's a big problem too. David may well be the king, but there's another king in the land. Saul. And the throne belongs to Saul right now. And as you can imagine for Saul, having a rival king is not good for business. So Saul resorts to the tactics of brutality. And he decides it's time for David to die. He's jealous of David, he's afraid of David, so he wants David's head. And basically, that's the story of our 14 chapters. It's the story of Saul hunting down David. In all, Saul makes at least 10 attempts on David's life. So what we're going to do now is just take um, a brief tour through these 10 attempts. Some of these are cracking yarns. Um, and so stick with me. 10 attempts. It seems a bit crazy, doesn't it? But it's true. Here we go. Attempt number one, Saul's spear. David's there in the royal palace. He's playing the harp like he usually does. He says to calm Saul. And suddenly Saul just picks up his spear and flings it at David. But David eludes him and David gets reassigned to the military. Attempt one. Attempt two. The outrageous bride price. This is a cracker. Saul's daughter loved David. 
which is very embarrassing for Saul. Right? This is like the Montagues and the Capulets, but just on steroids. Saul decides, however, to use this to his advantage. Saul tells David, look, mate, you can marry into the royal family. There's just a little bride price you've got to pay. All David has to do is, wait for it, he's got to bring to Saul a hundred Philistine foreskins. You heard that right. That really is in the Bible. And, and, and look at what Saul's plan was. Chapter 18, verse 25. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. It's a way of outsourcing David's death. So can you imagine how infuriated Saul was when David comes back, not with 100, but 200 of them? And then rightly, David gets to marry into the family. How frustrating this must have been for Saul. So by attempt three, Saul doesn't hide his intentions anymore. He just gets others involved. He openly tells his royal court that someone ought to kill David. But Saul's son, Jonathan, he warns David. David flees. Jonathan talks some sense into Saul, and so David's able to come back. But that, that's not a happy return, because attempt four happens, the spear comes back again. David makes a reappearance with the harp. While he's playing, history repeats itself. Saul picks up the spear, and again, David eludes him. And, and so for us now, chapter 90, verse 10, this comes as no surprise. It says, that night... David made good his escape. You're thinking, I mean, I would have been out there after one, but he's lift, it, took, it took four attempts for David to, to, to flee. So he goes back to his wife that night, and he prepares to leave the next morning. Except before he goes, we have attempt number five, the early morning snatch. Saul sends some assassins to David's house, and they're supposed to keep watch and wait. And then in the morning, they're going to go in and kill David. Except David's wife senses danger. So she tells David, you've got to get out of here tonight. And so when the assassins barge in the next morning, they find nothing more than a dummy lying in David's bed where they expect to see him. And so, uh, David escapes the hand of Saul. All of the, the, these first five attempts all really happen around, around one city, Gibeah, where that's Saul's capital city. Now David, he, he really knows he's in trouble, so he gets out. He flees about four k's to the north to a different town, to Ramah. This is where the great prophet Samuel is living, and David figures he's going to be safe there. Not true. And we get attempt six, the assassins pursue. Really, this is uh, four attempts in one, but for the sake of brevity, we'll just say it's one attempt. Uh, at this point, David's fled up north. The ancient version of the CIA is at work, uh, and word gets passed back to Saul that David's in Ramah. So Saul says to his assassins, you guys need to get up there and finish the job. And something really odd happens, right? Picture this in your head for a moment. The assassins, they get to the city of Ramah, and over there they, they see some prophets, and the prophets are prophesying. You think nothing of it. But then suddenly, the Spirit of God rushes onto the assassins. And so instead of murdering David, they end up over there with the prophets prophesying. Odd, weird, strange, unusual. 
But for Saul, the job's not done. So he says, okay, I've got to send another lot of assassins. They go, they see the prophets, and they start prophesying as well. Saul is not a smart, quick learner. He sends a third lot of assassins. No prizes for guessing what happens. They start prophesying. And finally, Saul gets jack of all this. He himself gets off his bottom. He heads up to Ramah. But lo and behold, Saul as well sees the prophets, starts prophesying. It all feels a little bit like a Monty Python scene, and David slips out the back door. Attempt number seven, betrayed by a city. This one comes a little bit later on. Uh, a few years have passed. Now, By now, David has gathered a bunch of misfits around him, 600 men, and they become kind of like a bit of a guerrilla force. They're soldiers, and they end up hiding out in a forest to think Robin Hood, that kind of thing. But they hear that there's an Israelite city being attacked by the Philistines. And apparently, Saul is not bringing his army to defend the city. So David takes it upon himself. He grabs his men and they go and they rescue the town, which is great. But again, it's like Saul's little ancient CIA finds out where he's at and the word gets back to Saul. So Saul comes to get his men. And this time it's like he's leaving no room for error at all. He doesn't just bring a few people along with him. Saul goes out in front of him. He gets the whole army behind him. They go to this one little city to find one guy. Problem is, David hears that Saul is on his way. And David finds out this city, the city that he's come to rescue when no one else would, the leaders of the city are going to betray him into the hands of Saul. So he, he hightails it out of there. He leaves. He ends up camping in the wilderness kind of areas. Think Bear grills. Um, Saul keeps looking for him in, in the wilderness but can't find him. And then we get attempt number eight, the betrayal by another city. Uh, David's got 600 men with him, we just saw, um, which makes it kind of hard to be inconspicuous, to lay low. And as soon as... Uh, as soon, soon enough, one of the townships nearby, they, they, they notice where, uh, where David is and they send word to Saul and say, mate, come on down here. Uh, you, can, you can get your man. So Saul and the army, they come again. And, and this, there's a great pursuit scene. David's running on one, with his men are running on one side on a, on a mountain cliff over here. Saul and his men are coming on the other mountain cliff. It's, it's reaching, it's tense, it's reaching climax. Saul's men are catching up. And just as they're about to overtake David's army and, and get him, the, 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 the moment of the climax, over in another part of the country, the Philistines start raiding. And so Saul has to withdraw his army so he can go and fight the Philistines. And lo and behold, David escapes again. Attempt number nine, the cave of relief. We read this one a little bit earlier. Again, the ancient CIA spies, they pick up David's track and rather than bring the whole army this time, Saul just chooses 3,000 of the best men. This is like his elite. This is the SAS of the ancient world. And off they go to get their one guy. And they're on their hunt. But embarrassingly for Saul, well, nature calls and he's a private man, so he goes deep into a cave. Only he's not alone in the cave. David's men are there hiding up the back. And David then has the opportunity to take Saul out. This is the guy who's been running after him all this time. But he doesn't. He cuts off the, he cuts off the corner of the robe that Saul's wearing. 
he comes out after Saul has left. He comes out and waves it around and says, Saul, you've done me wrong. Look, I could have killed you. And Saul is humbled. He calls off the pursuit. And you think, well, finally, that's it. He's just going to let David be. But no, there's more. Attempt number 10, Saul's deep sleep. It's kind of like history repeating itself, nearly. There's a township, finds out where David's men are. They tell Saul he comes. One night, David has the opportunity to kill Saul as he walks through Saul's army camp. But the, the, the army's in such a deep sleep, no one notices what's going on. Saul picks up David's spear, probably the same spear that he, he tried to kill David with. Saul, uh, David picks up the spear and the water jug. He, he runs away, then he yells out from a cliff, not far, a safe distance away. He confronts Saul with, with what he's done. And again, Saul promises, I'm not going to hunt you down anymore. I'm sorry. Only this time, David doesn't trust Saul's word. So look at chapter 27, verse 1. But David thought to himself, one of these days, I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. There Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I'll slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David goes to live with the Philistines. There's the 10 attempts. And it's nearly, it's nearly kind of comical, isn't it? How often Saul comes up short. And, and the manner in which he comes up short too, it, it's kind of funny. Until you put yourself in David's shoes. For David, this is, this is, no, this is not funny business at all. After all, for David, God's prophet has, has said, you're the king, has anointed him king. And then David has gone and done everything that God has asked for him. Everything that a king should do, David has done. And where has that got him? It's got him to a point where the most powerful person in the land wants his head. And this man is prepared to use all the might of the state military to get David's head. If you're in David's shoes... Wouldn't you be saying to God, gee, come on, God. You owe me a break here, don't you? I'm doing everything you've asked for me, and this is what I get. Come on, God. Won't you give me a break? You owe it to me. But if we read closer, what we see is that God is very present with David. Through all of this, God is protecting David, preserving his life. Remember attempt number six, the one where with all the weird prophesying things that the assassins end up prophesying? What stopped them going to kill David? The Spirit of God came on the assassins. God stopped them, and so David was rescued. Or attempt number seven, the one where David rescued a city but found out that city would betray him. How did David escape there? It was because God told him he needed to get out. And David escaped. And even though Saul kept searching for him, he couldn't find David. And why? Check this out. Oop, I've missed a couple here. Verse 
God did not give David into Saul's hands. And there's plenty more we could look at there. But there's something else I want us to notice too. And that is this. Not only did God protect David, but David knew that God was protecting him too. He was very aware of it. There are four Psalms that are explicitly linked with these uh, ten attempts on David's life. Uh, you'll know if you're reading this, you might know if you're reading the Psalms, uh, under, underneath where it says Psalm 51, often there's a little uh, description. It might say something like a Psalm of David. And occasionally, occasionally, it's linked to particular instances in David's life. Uh, for example, Psalm 59 is directly linked to attempt five. Psalm 52 is between attempt six and seven. Psalm 57 is about attempt nine. And Psalm 18 is about this whole general period where David is fleeing from Saul. And in each of these Psalms, David speaks about how he knows God is protecting him. I just want to read a bit from Psalm 18. So some of the highlights here. As I do... I want you to soak in the character of our God. So so some highlights from from Psalm 18. Verse 1. I love you, Lord, my strength. This is David as he's being pursued by Saul. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who's worthy of all praise, and I've been saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. Down to verse 16. He, God, reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of the deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of disaster. But the Lord was my support. Down to verse 30. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? See, God protected David's life. He didn't protect David from hard things. But he did protect and sustain David through them all. And so despite every attempt of Saul to kill David, at the end of the book, it's David, it's Saul who has his life taken away from him. In a great battle against the Philistines, Saul dies. A tragic character meets a tragic end. And it leaves the doors open then for David to take his throne, the throne which we've known he's going to have for the last 14 chapters. And so we see here a pattern emerge. There's suffering before glory. That's the pattern. Suffering before glory. 
God's king does not simply walk in on the red carpet and take the throne. He's not met with open arms. He's not even met actually with indifference. God's king is met with hostility. And so he takes the throne not with ease but through suffering and and unjust suffering at that. That's the story for the great King David. And it's the story of his great descendant, the greatest king, that is Jesus. So we're now looking at Jesus' story. Think about it for a moment. What's it like for Jesus when he comes into the world? How is he greeted? Well, he's greeted by another king, King Herod, a king who's greatly threatened when he hears that a baby king has been born. So threatened is Herod that he is prepared to and does try and kill all the boys aged under two years old just to protect his own throne. But Jesus escaped because God protected him. And then we get that all through his life, don't we? What's the, what's the pattern? For, the pattern for Jesus' life is suffering. The Romans come after him. His own countrymen betray him. His own family write him off as crazy. Even his closest friends abandon him. With Jesus, we have a man who knows suffering. But through it all, God protects him. When people want to pick up stones to, to, to throw at Jesus, to kill him, God protects him and Jesus is able to slide away through the crowd unharmed. At, at different times when the religious leaders try to arrest Jesus, their attempts are thwarted because God protects Jesus. And even when all Jesus' friends abandon him, God does not. Again, God didn't protect Jesus from hard things and from suffering, but he protected and sustained Jesus through them all. Or did he? Because Jesus didn't merely suffer attempts on his life like David. Jesus was actually killed by his enemies, wasn't he? He was murdered unjustly after a state-sanctioned witch hunt. So did God actually fail to protect Jesus at that moment? No, I I don't think so. Through his suffering, God protected Jesus, even through the suffering of death, because God brought his king back to life. Jesus is not rotting in the grave. He didn't become worm food. God raised him, and God put him on the throne. Not an earthly throne. Jesus is on the throne in heaven, a throne where he doesn't rule over just a little geographical area, but Jesus rules over every single inch of the cosmos. And Jesus knew that this was to be the pattern of his life. Look, this is what he said to his disciples, his friends after the resurrection. He said, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? So friends, take a moment. Take a moment to appreciate Jesus. To appreciate what he was willing to endure. The the degree of suffering that he went through. That he didn't just go through by chance or happenstance. He submitted himself to this. 
And not just that, but Jesus remains completely obedient through it all. You know, if you go back and you read through the 14 chapters that we're looking at today in 1 Samuel, you'll look at David's life and some things you'll find questionable, morally questionable. You think, why is he doing that? You look at the life of Jesus and never, never is there anything morally questionable that he does. He is completely obedient to God. Take a moment to appreciate Jesus. He is so good, friends. Do you appreciate him? It's the pattern for David. It's the pattern for Jesus. There is suffering before glory. Which leads us to our own stories. Our stories are happening in what I'll call the in-between age. We live in an age where, where Jesus is the king. He's the real king. He's the one who's really got power in this world. You know, President Trump or President Xi or Queen Lizzie, none of them really actually rule the world. Jesus sits on the throne. And yet, when we look around, Jesus isn't really recognized as that king, is he? His full royal power, it isn't known across the world or experienced. That is, his reign as king hasn't been fully brought into effect. He is king. We don't feel the full effects of that. We're living in the in-between age. It's like seeing a lightning strike close by. You see it happens. And there's that, that really short amount of time... And, and then you feel it, and then you'll hear it. The lightning is struck, but there's, there's that little bit of time before you really feel the full effects of it. That's, we're living in that moment. We've seen the lightning strike. Jesus has taken the throne. We haven't felt the full effects of that just yet. But be sure of this, friends. The full effects of that will come through. The lightning has struck. Jesus has taken the throne. The full effects of Jesus' rule and reign will come about. We're just waiting for that. Which actually means for us, that same pattern is true. If we choose to be for Jesus, we'll live by that pattern of suffering before glory. Which has to change our expectations about life, doesn't it? The Christian life is the good life. Don't get me wrong. The Christian life is the good life. It's, it's the best life. Jesus tells us that. And yet, the Christian life is not always the easy life. And we need to know this. For example, today, if, if you're here today and you're, you know in your life you're not really on board with Jesus yet, maybe you're wondering if you should jump on board with him, but you need to know this. That in this age, we're living in the in-between. We won't have it all, which means if you're thinking about coming on board with Jesus, I want you to know this. I want you to know this up front so that when you do come in with Jesus, you're not surprised by the hard things that you have to endure. So you're not surprised and give up on Jesus. He's told us that this is what it will be like. 
many of us here today will be already on board with Jesus, but it's so easy to forget this, isn't it? This pattern of suffering before glory. Have you forgotten that? What are you expecting in life now? It goes back to that question we asked at the start. What does God owe me? Often that question arises because we expect things from God. We expect to have certain things now, perhaps even to have it all now. And when I don't get those things, I think something's wrong. Something's wrong with God that he is holding out on me. I think I'm entitled to a better life or more success when I, when I try and do some evangelism or less ridicule for my faith or more success in ministry or whatever it might be. But that's a lie of Satan. Satan's lie has always been God is holding out on you. You're missing out because you belong to God. Satan's lie is that God is holding out on us and he wants us to believe that. So I want to say, friends, let's not believe Satan. Let's not take him at his word. He's lying to us. Because the truth is we follow Jesus. And this is the Jesus who ruled over the universe. And even though we don't feel the full effects of that yet, we're waiting for his, his kingly reign. We're waiting, no, it's already begun. We're waiting for that to, to, to really be felt. And while we do, it's suffering. But then it will be glory. So, friends, I want to say this. Let me wrap up. Let's be ready for the suffering. Let's endure it when it comes. Let's hold on to one another so that we endure it together when it comes. We're not in this alone. Let's remember and hold on to this truth that the same God who protected David, the same God who protected Jesus is the God who walks with us today and protects us through the hard things that we endure. And let's not lose our eyes for the glory that awaits. Let's keep our eyes fixed there. Suffering now, yes, but glory is to come. Let's look forward to that. Will you pray with me? Our great Father God, we thank you. You are the God over all. We thank you for your protection of David, that even though he went through hardships, he didn't go through it alone. We thank you that we can see in his life, though there is suffering, there's a pattern which leads to glory. We praise you that we see that in our Lord Jesus too, that even for him while he endured suffering and unjust suffering, that he did it completely obedient to you. Help us live in wonder of our Lord Jesus. And we thank you then that we get to join into this pattern of life, that though there is suffering now, there is glory to come. Father, forgive us when we have that mentality that you would owe us anything. Forgive us for thinking that you're holding out on us and help us not to listen to Satan's lie there. Give us eyes to see the good gifts that you do give us. Give us eyes that see the protection that you provide for us. And help us hold on that we might reach that moment of glory with you. Sustain us until we're there, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.